0: Hello, and welcome to This is Purdue, the official podcast for Purdue University. Our conversations and stories feature Boilermaker students, faculty, and alumni taking small steps toward their giant leaps and inspiring others to do the same. Exploring civilizations of the past helps us better understand the world in which we live. For the past 20 years, Professor Michelle Buzon has studied the ancient Nubian city of Tombos in modern-day Sudan, first as a graduate student and now as a member of the Purdue University faculty. Through her rich discoveries and the contributions of Purdue anthropologists like PhD students Katie Whitmore and Caitlin Sanders, Buzon is making giant leaps toward preserving human history by sharing its untold stories.
1: I think that understanding our past is extremely important. You never really find what you expect to find. We have found a number of really beautiful artifacts.
2: I had no idea that this site would be so interesting. This is a site that's been Known for several decades because there are some inscriptions on rocks that um, border the Nile and you can tell that they were made during ancient Egyptian activities there when they were expanding their empire south into Nubia. It looks like the earliest evidence starts about 1450 B.C. They were administrators in the Egyptian government, and they were managing the resources that Nubia provided for Egypt. So Nubia has gold and cattle, there's ivory and other sorts of um, precious goods that Egyptians wanted. My collaborator Stuart Tyson Smith at University of California Santa Barbara was on a survey in Sudan looking for Egyptian sites and found that this one had little work being done on it and thought it was a good location to investigate. Our first field season was in 2000 so we started preparing for it about 20
1: years ago. We work within a specific pyramid shaft and we work with a group of Sudanese workers that we hire from the local community. So our
2: team, probably 15 or so on the the larger years, and then we hire maybe about 30 to 40 uh, local workers from the community to work with us.
1: Before you find anything, it's a lot of just kind of brushing and shoveling and getting rid of some of the sand and dirt you sometimes have to kind of contort yourself in, in somewhat difficult positions to try to um, excavate the skeleton or the artifact without disturbing anything. I always excavate either barefoot or in socks just so that you don't accidentally break something or something like that. But really the biggest challenge is that we get a lot of dust storms. When you start excavating something and then the dirt comes back into your tomb, that's that's not a
2: lot of fun. <laughs> As we excavate we are basically destroying the archaeological record and so the only way that we can then study it is to preserve it the best way we can and to document it. So we take lots and lots of pictures and we have some sketch drawings as well to try to recreate what's there. It's it's very detailed because we know that we can't go back and and do it again.
1: Last season I had the chance to uh, excavate part of a toiletry box, so that was really interesting. It had um, a razor for shaving in there, it had a applicator for putting on eyeliner, it had little ivory boxes that had pigments inside um, that would have been part of a uh, makeup routine for an individual. One thing I try to remember when I'm excavating is that these are all individuals who lived in the past, right? They were somebody's mother or grandmother. And so um, in cases when we can find complete burials, it really does feel like a whole person. And so I think each one of those individuals is very important.
2: You know, you have a plan, you have an idea, you write a proposal, but things always change when you're in the field. Based on what you could see from the surface, everything looked very Egyptian. And so we thought it was probably a colony of, of Egyptians. So it was a surprise to find evidence of individuals who were expressing their Nubian identity and really, really showing that there were there were Nubians there. And we know this because there are people buried
1: in different styles. Kind of if you think of Egyptians, you think of like King the like like extended body with like arms crossed, you might get something like that. Whereas the Nubians might be buried on their side um, in a flexed position. Nubians tended to be buried on a bed
2: while Egyptians had coffins. And so we see these different styles in, in the tombs and in the same tombs. So there's Nubians and Egyptians being buried together.
1: It's a really interesting mix. You'll get maybe someone even buried in Nubian style but has maybe an Egyptian scarab or something. So there is this combination there.
2: So we're trying to sort of give the story of their life through their skeleton.
1: Broadly, we can look at morphological differences in in the bones that might suggest different groups. People who are uh, likely coming from an Egyptian area or people who are likely coming from a Nubian area.
2: I've also been working on strontium isotope analysis to try to give um, some additional data on where people lived when they were children. So by analyzing the strontium in their teeth, I can get a sense of whether or not they grew up in the local area or if perhaps they came from Egypt. And what I found was that this isn't just a group of of Egyptian colonists, that there seems to be evidence of um, a quite varied morphology in their skulls that that indicates it's a mixed group of Nubians and Egyptians. So sort of another indication um, with the burial practices and the skeletons that tell us that this is a, a group of Egyptians and Nubians living together. It's very rare for us to be able to tell what somebody died of unless there's, you know an arrowhead (laughs) embedded in their body, right? Most people died of things, probably infectious disease, heart disease, um, these sorts of things, but we can tell what they lived with. So we can tell if they had some nutritional deficiencies as a child or if they were um, dealing with an infectious disease not too long before they died. And one interesting thing that I found is that people were doing really well. They seemed to have adequate resources, so there wasn't a lot of evidence of nutritional deficiency or infection. People were living a fairly long time. They had the kinds of conditions that you expect to see in a pretty healthy but aging population, arthritis and things like that. Using some programs that we have suggests that there are people that probably lived until their 80s at Tombos. Archaeology is one way that we can tell the stories of people that haven't been written down. People change over time and I think we we like to divide people into different groups, but in reality, they may not have saw themselves in these two very separate groups that we say, oh, well, this is Egyptian, this is Nubian. And we see people combining features from these groups over time that leads to a different identity that we didn't really have represented before in the archeological record. It's been really wonderful. I think a lot of people don't have a good sense of what Sudan is like, but the community could not be more welcoming. They're very kind, generous people. Uh, hospitality is something that's part of the Nubian culture. Everybody invites us over for tea, for a meal, and uh, you know we've grown up with the kids there now. I think you go into graduate school with certain ideas about what you want to do, and. I took an opportunity to go to this site and it sounded like a fun opportunity and it's been an opportunity that's been going on for 20 years now. I had no idea that I would end up working at this site for that long. We're learning more every single season and it's just, it's interesting on a personal level and it's been really fun to tell the stories.
0: As he imparts a lifelong love of history, distinguished professor Randy Roberts inspires Purdue University students to explore iconic heroes and landmark events of the past. His passion for relating to these stories also fuels his scholarly research, which has resulted in numerous published works on such diverse topics as the Alamo, John Wayne, and Mickey Mantle.
3: I can't remember a time that I wasn't interested in history. came to Purdue in the fall of 1988, the most popular course that I teach at Purdue that has been for a number of years is a course on World War II. But I also teach the second half of the American survey sometimes. I teach a course on sport history. I teach a big class, 250, maybe even 500 students. And I knew virtually all those students were convinced on the first day of class, this is going to be the worst course that I take this semester, okay? Because they've all had a bad experience with history, right? And I always felt, well, I can jump over that bar, okay? They have no expectations. The idea is to show the excitement of history. You know, when I walk into a classroom, every single time, I think of the same thing. Okay, I have something to teach today. I will only teach it to this class of students one time in my life. I'm going to give it the best shot I can have. And what do I teach? I teach a course like World War II. You kidding me? If you can't make World War II interesting, you can't make anything interesting. It is the most compelling story in my mind in world history. Suddenly, they're interested. And also, it's not just the good students that are interested. You know, I really get an excitement when, you know, it's the C students, it's, it's the below C students that says, this is interesting. You know, I've, I've never been intellectually interested like this. It's easy to teach and to get people excited about a course like that. I look at my students and I get 18 year olds. They don't have rear view mirrors, okay? They're looking straight ahead. But suddenly you become 35 or 40 And you start looking behind you. How did I get here? They remember they took a course from me, and that guy talked about World War II or World War I in the course. I think I'll read a book about that. Or they talked about this individual. So I'm trying to, in a sense, plant a seed that maybe will bear fruit a decade or more down the road. What does Purdue expect from me? You know, number one, they expect me to teach. Students come here. We're paid to teach them. And, and, and I take that job very seriously. The second thing that we're paid to do is to do research, to write books. I write the kind of books that maybe you'd buy in a bookstore or you're on Amazon.com. I've written other books, textbooks. If you count everything, it's about 35 or so. I'm drawn to subjects that I'd like to read a book on, that I don't feel there's been a book written on it quite like the book that I want to write. That's not to say that my book's going to be better than another book, but I I feel I have something different to say. I've gravitated towards writing books about iconic individuals and iconic events and what those individuals or events mean to America. So I've written about boxers, Jack Dempsey, Jack Johnson, Joe Lewis, Muhammad Ali. I've written about actors, uh, you know, Ronald Reagan, several books on John Wayne. Uh, I've written about the Alamo. My latest book is, again, about an iconic individual, is a book called A Season in the Sun, The Rise of Mickey Mantle, and it came out in March of this year. The idea for this book was, in the 1950s, Mickey Mantle was the God of Baseball. I wanted to capture Mickey Mantle at his prime. And if you center on what is his best year, it was 1956 when he won the Triple Crown, when he threatened for a while Babe Ruth's sacred record of 60 home runs. And so I kind of focused in on America in the mid-50s and Mickey Mantle's place in that America. What holds my books together or my career together, is that when I became a historian, when I went to graduate school, there was a lot of emphasis on telling a different story than previous generations had told. It was a story of politicians, of diplomats, of industrialists. It was a story that was told from the top down. What I'm trying to do is to tell the story of America looking at a heroes, icons that don't come from the top, generally come from the bottom and work their way up. I still love teaching. I can't imagine not writing. And I always told myself, okay, you know, when I'm done with this book, i am got to take a year or so off and just concentrate on teaching. After 40 years of doing it and never getting that break that I have always said I was going to do. You know, at some point you realize, this is who I am. This is what I do. I do it not for another promotion, not for anything outside. I do it because I love doing it. And I can't imagine not doing it. Most people, when they're 16 or 18, or you know, they don't think, I'm going to write books. And I didn't think about that. It wasn't until I was in graduate school that I thought, you know, this writing is kind of interesting. Then my dissertation got published very quickly, and so, you know, from then it was a next book and then a the next book and the, and suddenly that's who I was. You know, it's it's funny what life does to you and how life defines you as you as you move through it without really a, an active plan.
0: Randy Roberts joined the Purdue faculty in 1988. He was honored as the 2006 Indiana Professor of the Year and was named a 150th professor of Purdue's sesquicentennial in 2019. Thanks for listening to This is Purdue. For more information on this episode, visit our website at purdue.edu podcast. There, you can route to your favorite podcast app to subscribe and leave a review. As always, boiler up.